0: Tonight, we're gonna to, uh, to get into the New Testament, finally. Um, if it feels like we've been in the Old Testament forever, it's because we have been. Um, but about 75% of all the verses in the Bible are Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi. Uh, you know, we didn't even look at any, anywhere close to um, 75% of the verses in the in the Bible, um, let alone the Old Testament. But but about 25% then is in the the New Testament. Obviously, we folks of uh, Christian faith tend to focus more on on the New Testament. My my, my doctoral work, however, in uh, um, seminary at, at Claremont, uh, it's in Southern California. People talk about um, Claremont being the Yale of the West Coast. Those of us from Claremont described. Yale as the Claremont of the East Coast. So, in case you're curious, that's my friend, Carla Eighty, just in case Carla is is listening. She's a graduate of of Yale. Um, But my my doctoral work focused on preaching on the Old Testament in the Christian pulpit with the idea that uh, for a couple of things. One, um, uh, Christians have tended to uh, see the New Testament as better and the Old Testament as less than. Even the names we give to them, Old Testament and new imply that one's better than the other. You might even hear a lot of people, um, sometimes folks who are on our staff and others who refer to the Old Testament as the Hebrew Bible. I did that once in my doctoral work and my major professor said, it's not just for the Hebrews, it's for the whole world. So um, <laughs> uh, his name's Ralph Kinaram, you can send him a note if you don't like that. And trust me, he will write you back. Um, Great, great, brilliant theologian, brilliant Old Testament um, the- theologian, but he would also quickly recognize that we don't really have good good uh, nomenclature for that. A lot, some folks um, like to say First Testament and Second Testament, but as soon as you do that, you've just again now you've relegated the the New Testament to um, second place. Um, so I. I that's just some minor uh, doctoral seminary kind of uh, conversation that we would sit up till late in the night talking about, and then no one would care. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> So, we're finally tonight getting into the New Testament, uh, and and we're really going to look at uh, the birth stories very carefully. We're going to look briefly at the Sermon on the Mount. I hope you read through that. We're going to look at Luke 15, which has three of my favorite parables, all of them centered on the the theological concept of grace. And then we're going to look, again, briefly at all four of the resurrection stories. Um, I hope you got to read some of these texts. I really do, because there's so much fascinating, so many fascinating um, uh, things happening in, in, in the birth stories and in the resurrection stories, uh, all kinds of differences and nuances, flat out almost um, completely different stories at a couple of points. Uh, so I hope you've had some time to uh, uh, read, read through those before tonight, because it'll, it'll, it'll enhance our, our conversation. All right, um, Stuart, let's put that first slide up there. This is from Rob Bell. The Bible is not a book about going to heaven. The action is here, the life is here, the point is here. It's a library of books about the healing and restoring and reconciling of renewing and renewing of this world, our home. I really like that statement from, from Rob Bell's book and hopefully you've, you, if you have bought it, you've, you've run across this, this comment. So often, especially when I was growing up, we were really taught about how to get to heaven, how to get to heaven. Here's what you've got to do to get eternal life. Here's how, what you have to do. Accept this, believe this, act like this, and there you go, you're in. Um, it was almost that, kind of, that formulaic. There were certain things that you would do, and then you would be in. Um, it, that's really not the purpose of the Bible. The purpose of the Bible is for salvation, but even the word sozo, which is translated to save, in the New Testament means to be saved for life, for full life, for a rich life, an abundant life. I don't mean wealth, but uh, uh, financial wealth. I mean a a rich uh, life that's full of blessings and family and love and friends and and all of that. To be saved is to be saved for a life that gives you that sort of freedom to live live that way. That's really the focus, especially, of the New Testament. And actually, I think you can find that same basic idea when we think of the word shalom. Um, and how the Hebrews were constantly working towards shalom, that completeness, wholeness, fullness of, of life that, that was, was there. Um, uh, John Ortberg, who's one of my favorite preachers, who's a conservative evangelical out at a, a big Presbyterian church in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, Ortberg says, uh, anytime we, get the, we take the teachings of Jesus and reduce it into a how to get to heaven um, uh, kind of theology, we, we're no longer talking about Jesus. And that's, that's from a fairly conservative evangelical pastor, one, one who I admire and, and read quite a bit of, even though sometimes I disagree with his materials. So it's really important that you kind of get that idea that, that we're not really trying to figure out what to do or believe or say or think or, or act like in order to get something at the end. Rather, it's about this life now and what are we gonna receive now? And trust that God will take care of what happens to us um, when, our, when our lives are over. Someone asked me a couple weeks ago, uh, what do you believe will happen when we die? And I, I, I got a two-part answer to that. My first part is this. I can as much explain what will happen when we die as a, a nine-month-old fetus still in utero can explain what's gonna happen when it's born. I mean, that, that fetus has no idea. It may even be frightened. I don't know fetus, I, where's Dr. Davis? Can, can babies in utero, can they be scared? I suppose they can be, yeah, sure, he says yes. Um, it has no idea what's coming next. You know, and it, it sees a bright light, I suppose, at some point. Um, you know, that, all, that could be frightening. Uh, that's, that's kind of the same way I think of life after death. Do I know what's going to happen next? No, but I trust very much that in whatever it is that God will be there and will, will uh, take me, take us on into the life that is to come. Um, and, and the second thing I say is I really don't worry about it in terms of how it affects my life now. If I live my life now and, and I seek to follow Jesus and I seek to let the teachings of Jesus guide who I am and how I am, then um, I think God will be pleased with that. Uh, do I fall short? Yes. If, if you know anyone who's perfect, if any of you are perfect, come and talk to me afterwards because I want to find out what it is you've done to become, to become perfect. And if you're talking about how perfect you are, you didn't read the Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> uh, so. Um, uh, I love that. I love that quote from Mr. Bell, and it's a great way to remind us about what we're doing in this study. We're not trying to find a, a ticket to heaven. What we're truly really trying to do is hear what the Bible has to say to us today, especially if we take it seriously and, and, and really get into it. All right, we're gonna um, I'll leave that quote up there for a moment, uh, Stuart. Uh, we're gonna we're going to look at, at the at the two Christmas stories. Uh, the one that's found in Matthew one and two and the one that's found in Luke um, one and two. If you wanna open your Bibles to those two sections, that would be great. Kinda of keep two fingers, one in Luke and one in, one in Matthew. We might flip back and forth a little bit. Um, but anyone who, who, who read it, oh, by the way, I need, just need to warn you about something. I have good news and bad news. I had a really long day, I've been up since 5 a.m., I had meetings all day long, and, and I got home and Julie fixed a really nice meal um, at about six, which means I really wanna take a nap before I go to bed. <coughs> and so, I'm, I'm, so I'm, I'm tired, I drank a cup of coffee, it hasn't helped yet. Um, but being tired means I will talk slower, so that's good. But our, that also means that our class, that would normally be 60 minutes, will be about two hours. So just, just so you're aware. Um, Matthew uh, 1 and 2, and then the Christmas story as it's told in Luke 1 and 2 are theologically powerful documents that really, let me say this carefully, really don't have a whole lot to do with Christmas morning celebrations. When Matthew and Luke wrote their stories, they weren't thinking about how to enrich our Christmas Eve and Christmas Day celebrations. Christmas celebrations didn't come until three or 400, maybe even 500 years later before they really started to get incorporated. I forget the name of the church father who stole some of the Roman um, um, parties and tried to incorporate some Christmas stuff in, into them. <clears throat> what Matthew and Luke are trying to do is give us a theological slash political contrast with Roman rule. Especially Luke. Especially Luke. But let's start with Matthew. It's a beautiful theological statement made there. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 19. Remember, Mary has come to Joseph and said, "Uh, Joseph, I I know we've not had sex yet, but um, I'm pregnant and I'm still a virgin. And, And Joseph is surprised by this news. Her husband Joseph being, verse 19. Being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. That verse actually has a biblical background to it. Did you know that? The plan to dismiss your wife quietly, now, now, by the way, there's, there's a ton of material on are they married really yet? Are they betrothed? Is betrothed like being married? Could they have had sex already possibly? Maybe not. Maybe perhaps. Some people think that people lived together for a long time, uh, a few months anyway, before the actual marriage took place. But even the betrothal was a legal sort of step. Um, would they have had sex before that happened or not? Or maybe could have been. It's hard to say. It's just really hard to say. Here's another little aside for you. In case anybody's not paying attention, this will wake you up. It's really hard to say whether the Bible is for or against premarital sex. Um, I, I waited to start saying that in public until my kids were in their 20s. So just, just so you know. <clears throat> um, but there is some kind of a legal, some kind of a legal binding agreement between two persons who are betrothed. And so Joseph, according to Deuteronomy, I think Deuteronomy 24.1, put that text up there. Uh, it's up there. Good. Hey, Stuart, you're, you're, you're ahead of me. Deuteronomy 24.1 says, if a man's tired of his wife, he can write her a note and send her away. I mean, check that. you can check that later. You can check it now if you, you want to. Uh, it's, it's a very patriarchal, male-dominated view, obviously. If Joseph does this, if he follows through with this, What's going to happen to Mary? She's going to be a disgrace. She's, she has a couple of options. She can become a slave. And most likely, if she's going to be a slave, she'll be a sexual slave. Or she, become, she can become a prostitute and try to survive in that way. That's really about the only options she has. Unless somebody in her family takes a huge risk and welcomes her back into the, back into the fold. Um, it was a, a terrible, horrible law to enact, especially to a, a woman who was probably a 15 or 16-year-old girl. Again, some debate about how old Joseph was. Chances are pretty good. Joseph could have been 30 years old or older. Um, it, would have been, it would have been very typical for an older man to marry a much younger woman, uh, a girl, we might say say today. In fact, some people think the proof that Joseph was older is the fact that he pretty much disappears after Jesus is 12 years old. We don't hear anything more about, about Jesus. And so some people think, I mean, about Joseph, some people think he just got old and died of, of whatever whatever uh, um, uh, it, might, it might have been. Um then the next thing Joseph does, remember what he does? What's the very next thing that happens? He has a dream. He has a dream. And in the dream, an angel says to him, hey, it's okay. <laughs> it's really fine. It's crazy and wild and strange and unusual, but don't sweat it. It's okay. Take her and care for her and love her. She's going to bring in, uh, bring the Messiah in into the world. The way I, the way I interpret that text is that Joseph is... Able to reinterpret the Bible. Now he gets a little help from the angel. But if Joseph, Joseph easily could have said, Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. You ever seen that bumper sticker? You know, Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. <clears throat> he could have easily gone with that. Sent her away, he could have told everybody, she is pregnant, can you believe it? She is pregnant. We, we, we haven't had sex, we haven't, we, there's no way it's my, my child. It's no way. She got pregnant. And everyone in the town would go, yeah, sure. Instead, Joseph looks at it through the lens of grace. The angel helps him, but I think ultimately it's finally still his decision. He looks at her and her condition through the lens of grace and decides to keep keep the family together. Another thing I want you to notice from this text, uh, um, uh, verse, verse 20 but just when he resolved this, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, or she, um, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll bear a son, you're to name him Jesus, etc." Then verse 23, look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Quotes the Bible, when Joseph awoke from sleep, he did this, the angel of the Lord commanded him and he took his wife. But he had no marital relations with her until she had borne a son, named him Jesus. Then the wise men come, you know that part of the story. Then they have to escape to Egypt. Why do they have to escape to Egypt? Somebody tell me real quick, out loud. To escape Herod who wants to do what? Kill, kill all the babies. And then he does kill all, kill all the babies. And Jesus goes in, into um, Egypt and then he comes back and, that, and the, the way Matthew tells his story, that's to make another Old Testament prophecy come true. Out of Egypt I called my son. So what, what, look at the story. First of all, look at the elements of the story, the Christmas story in Matthew's version, totally separate from Luke, okay? We conflate them every year at Christmas. This church does. Every church I've ever served does. One year, I think I was in San Diego, I suggested, why don't we tell the Christmas story just from the perspective of Matthew or Luke? And they all look just like you did when I said that. <laughs> like, are you kidding? We can't do that. But we're doing it in Bible study. It's October, so you would be Okay. Look at the story. Joseph finds out his wife's pregnant. He wants to send her away. The angel comes and says, don't do that, it's gonna be fine. The wise men come. Who are these wise men? Where are they from? They're from the east. They're foreigners. They're probably astrologers. They probably have a completely different religion than Judaism, completely different. Uh, uh, Maybe they're Zoroastrian um, in their their faith, and their practice. Whatever it is, they're outsiders, foreigners. They recognize Jesus. Now, do you see what Matthew's doing right at the top? You see what he's doing? The outsiders, they see who this is. The foreigners, they see who this is. The people who aren't even a part of our faith, they see who this is. Matthew wants to make that very clear at the beginning, but he also wants to hook his Jewish audience. What happens next? Herod comes in, threatens to kill the babies. Joseph has another what? Dream, Dream. says get out of here. Notice also what Matthew's doing here. If you're, if you're a person who is familiar with Judaism or if you're a Jew who's converted to Christianity and you hear the word Joseph and you hear the word dream, what do you think of? Joseph in, in Genesis chapter 50, the Joseph in the Technicolor dream Code, as we say. You know, immediately you say, oh, here's another Joseph who's a dreamer, whose dreams lead him to salvation it's like the dream of God again coming true in the life of Joseph, this new Joseph. He, he escapes, Herod comes and kills all the babies in Bethlehem under the age of two. They go to Egypt, we don't know what happens in Egypt, and then he comes back. Do you see how that story isn't about, I love Christmas, trust me, and we, Julie's got more Christmas, or used to have more de- Christmas decorations than, than any human being alive. Um, we love to celebrate Christmas. We have a beautiful meal. I love to, to speak on Christmas Eve. All, all of that, of course. But Matthew is really telling us a grim tale of struggle with power, struggle with, with politicians, a struggle with people's beliefs, struggle with old religious laws that no longer apply. All these things are a part of what Matthew is setting up in his story here. He's also also presenting Jesus as kind of a new what? What other famous leader came out of Egypt? Moses. Moses. He's calling Jesus out of, out of Egypt. It's like this is the new Moses. So you see there's some theological and some political hooks that Matthew is, is extending for us. All right, now let's, let's flip over to, to Luke. Hopefully you have that saved in your, with your finger there. Luke chapter 1. Oh, I, I forgot this slide. Put slide number 3 up there, would you please, um, Stuart? Stuart? That's kind of a trick question. How many Christmas stories are there in the Bible? I already gave you the answer. There, there are two. There's not one, there's two. Because again, uh, one of the things I've done with smaller groups, too hard to do with a group this size. I tried to figure out how to do it. I couldn't make it work. If I had a group of 10 in a small Bible study, I'd have five people read Matthew and five people read Luke and give, you, give me a, a chronology of all the major things that happen in those two different Christmas stories and then compare them. And people would just go, holy cow, look at this. Matthew's making a, 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 a whole lot of points that aren't the same as Luke's. Luke's making a, if you wanna win a bets at a bar, ask people, how many Christmas stories are there in the Bible? And you can, you can win a free glass of wine or something, I suppose, by saying there's, there's actually two. Uh, there's two here. Now, let's look at Luke real, real quickly. And I want to skip to uh, chapter 2. And there's, there's a lot of beautiful stuff there in chapter 1 about the birth of John the Baptist and all that, but chapter 2. In those days a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration and was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. You see what Luke's doing? He's putting this birth right in the middle of history. He's setting it right in the middle of Rome's history and Rome's story. Augustus was in Rome, Quirinius was in Syria. Uh, um, Pilate would not have been in, I don't think, would have been in in, um, uh, uh, Jerusalem by this time, but but he's setting it in history. He's also wanting to get his audience thinking about that. If I said words to you like um, freedom and liberty and justice for all, what's that make you think of? Say it loud. Revolutionary War, what else? Declaration, Declaration of Independence. Um, what is it we say when we pledge, I pledge allegiance to the flag, United States of America, and liberty and justice for all, right? If I said those kind of phrases, you know what I'm talking about. Declaration of Independence, the Revolutionary War, pledge of allegiance to the flag. Those same kinds of phrases are used by Luke to describe who Jesus is and who he is going to, be, who, who he's going to become. There are f- phrases and terms that were used especially to describe Augustus, who is named here at the very beginning. Look at, um, <clears throat> at verse uh, uh, 11. To you is born this day in the city of David a savior. In Greek, that's the word soter, who is the Messiah, the Lord. In Greek, that's the word kurios. When Caesar. Comes riding into town, or if one of his armies comes riding into town, they're almost always going to be carrying a banner. And on that banner, in Hebrew, or in, in, in Latin and in Greek, it's going to say, Caesar is curios," Caesar is Savior. Do you see what Luke's doing? No, he's not. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Savior. It's not, it's not, um, it's not Augustus, it's, it's Jesus. Um, what do the angels sing? Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace among those whom he favors. That phrase in Latin, peace on earth, was on all the coins or many of the coins of Rome when this story is happening. Again, do you catch what, what Luke is saying? Augustus thinks he's in charge. Augustus thinks he's got all the horses and chariots and spears and, and, and armies and everything else and he thinks he's the one who's gonna bring peace. It's not, it's this one. And, and not only that, it gets, it gets even more fun. Um, here's, a, here's another trivia question for you to win a free glass of wine at a bar. Uh, who was Augustus' mother? Can anybody remember? Anybody remember her name? Anybody watch the HBO miniseries, Rome? Um, uh, Augustus' mother was Atia, A-T-I-A. According to the story told by a Roman historian at the time that Augustus was born, Atia was asleep at night, and the god Apollo came to her, put a child in her womb, and 10 months later, Augustus was born. Do you hear what kind of birth that is? That's a virgin birth. See, Luke is taking is taking, the, and not knowing, I mean, I learned this like in seminary when I was 24, and I just remember sitting, or 25, I remember sitting there in the class going, how come no one's ever told us this? This is unbelievable. Cause, because Luke, it's, it's so much more powerful to see it through that lens, to recognize that what Luke is doing here is taking this really radical, amazing story and putting it right in the face of those who think they have the power and control and saying, no, it's not you. It's this child who's born to these wandering Refugees who have nowhere to sleep. He's born in a barn. And the only people who witness it, according to Luke's story, don't think about Matthew. The only people who witness it according to Luke's story are who? Shepherds. And by the way, a shepherd in Israel in antiquity was not considered a viable witness in court. So the only ones who witness the story are people who aren't even viable witnesses. What's Luke getting at there? What do you think Luke is trying to say? Say it loud. Everybody has a voice. Everybody has a voice. That's a good one. Yeah, what else might he be trying to say? Somebody say it out loud. He was a common person. He came up from the people. Yeah. He had an authority that came from those he was around, not not given from a, from power and politics, but from actually from being a part of the people. Absolutely. Anything else? Somebody I heard something. You see what Luke wants to do is he's contrasting the power of God with the power of Caesar. Caesar thinks he's got it all. And Luke is saying what we really need is, is a savior and a Lord who will bring true peace. How, how did Rome bring peace into the land? <laughs> you, you want peace? We're bringing the peacekeepers. Get out of the way. Here they are. Do what they say and you'll have, you'll have peace. And actually, there's some. There's a lot of historians who will give the Romans quite a bit of credit. Um, if you've seen the movie Life of Brian, anybody seen that movie? Ray, confess, I've seen it. Raise your hand high if you've seen it. Some of you have. There's one scene in there says, it's a satirical look at the life of Christ. Um, and it's theologically br- brilliant. Offensive at times, but it's still brilliant. But there's a scene in there where the, this group of Jewish uh, uh, revolutionaries are saying, what have the Romans ever done for us? And somebody says, um, clean water? Oh, yeah, clean water. Oh, well, our water was terrible before them. Well, what else have they ever done for us? Um, it's safe to go at night, well, yeah, it's safe to go out at night. Of course it is. And they just give us a whole list of things that the Romans actually did for them. So you can argue that, yes, Rome did bring a lot of good things to that part of the world. But what Luke is arguing is they're doing it through power, manipulation and control. They're doing it, doing it through violence. They're doing it through weaponry. And it's not going to work. This new savior, this new one, is actually coming with a whole new way of looking at, at the world. All right, that's probably a lot more than you ever wanted to know about those two stories. But I, I as you can tell, I kind of get fired up about it. All right. Let's go to slide number four and flip on back to Matthew chapter five, if you would please. This is the Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> I've been Julie and I have been to the spot uh, where tradition says Jesus <clears throat> uh, gave this gave this sermon. <clears throat> It's, it's really, on our Holy Land trip, and by the way, we're thinking about a Holy Land trip a year from right now. we'll get the details ready together in a couple of months and, and let you know. If you're interested in going on that trip, uh, let me know and I'll make sure you get those, that information. Um, but we were there a few years ago and, and there's a, part, a, a section on the north end of the Sea of Galilee uh, where it's kind of almost in a bowl shape. And, and the, the tradition says that he gave the Sermon on the Mount there because uh, acoustically people would have been able to hear him, that the bowl shape of the of the hill would have projected the sound out out, out to them. Um, hard to say. Um, there's a lot of places in the Holy Land where they say, oh, this is the actual spot where Jesus was born and there's a star there and you have to crawl down in the thing and touch the star and I don't know, maybe. Um, but. At the Sermon on the Mount, there's a couple places where he uses these practical illustrations. And he says a city on a hill uh, cannot be hid. And actually, you can look out across the Sea of Galilee. You can see a couple little villages on the top of the hill. And you can say, oh, I can see Jesus using that illustration. Um, It's it's kind of, it was one of those places where I had a little bit of a moment. Back to the Sermon on the Mount. My friend Mark, um, I went to seminary with him a few years ago, decided he was going to memorize the Sermon on the Mount all three chapters, whole thing. Take about 25 minutes to then recite it in public. So on a Sunday morning in his church, it's a pastor, very good one, good preacher. He memorized the Sermon on the Mount though, and he said, today in place of the sermon, I'm going to give Jesus Sermon on the Mount. And he did it, start to finish, beautifully done. Just almost like he was a professional paid actor. Afterwards, a, a member of the board, a leader in the church came up to him and shook his hand and said, it's a good thing you told us those words were Jesus, or you'd be in trouble. <laughs> did, did you read the text? This is some pretty pushy stuff. There's some stuff in here that's almost impossible to think about ever living up to. Um, look at this one. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery in his, in, with her in his heart. Um, who's famous or almost infamous? Jimmy Carter, yeah. Uh, everybody, everybody here was around in 1976 when um, uh, he was quoted. I don't remember the magazine. What was the magazine he was quoted in? Playboy, oh, maybe you have a copy. You can uh, bring it later. I, I think I, I admire President Carter very much. Um, the way he has served the world since he's been out of office has been amazing. Um, agree or disagree with the way he ran things as a president. Um, I, I think you could argue that he's lived his Christian faith. Uh, out since, since he got out of office, very much so. Um, but I think he made a mistake here. I think what Jesus is, Jesus is doing a couple things. One, I think he wants to get their attention. Look, folks, come on. You think, because you've never slept around on your wife or your husband, that you're, that you're just a, a pure person. No, come on. Admit this. Secondly, he's really hammering the uber, super religious people who exactly think that. They look down their noses at everybody else. Anybody who's ever stumbled, anybody who's ever done anything wrong, they just can't believe that they would be caught up living and acting and behaving that way. And Jesus is saying to those probably Pharisees, to the religious leaders in the crowd, you people are the ones who really need to know this. And frankly, it's those folks, Pharisees would have been in the top 5% economically and intellectually in, in their country, primarily because they could read only about five to 10 percent of folks in antiquity knew how to read and write. Pharisees would have been in that category. If you can read and write and you're in the top five percent intellectually and um, financially, what does that mean you have the power to do? You can cover up your own stuff. That's what you've got. So Jesus is hammering them on that point. He's basically saying, look, I know how you guys are acting and behaving. You're covering up your stuff. In fact, I had a friend, in, um, he was on my staff in, in Kansas City. His wife was a psychologist. He was our youth minister for a few years in, in Kansas City. His wife is the one who said, um, alcoholism and drug abuse is easier to hide the more money you have. Yeah, you should have heard how quiet the crowd got that night when she shared that. You know, we tend to look at the folks who are uh, in the gutter and say, boy, you know, poor guy, made some terrible choices. Her point was pretty strong. The more money you have, the easier it is to cover up whatever those issues are. I think that's what Jesus is getting at here. He's, he's cutting to the chase and saying, come on, everybody. There, there's no way you can be condemning and judging of those who've stumbled because, frankly, it's just as bad for you. Um, all right, next, next slide. <clears throat> You've heard that it was said... You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I would submit that of all the texts in the Bible, this may be the most difficult one to practice. Don't even think about Russia or ISIS or, or white supremacists or not neo-Nazis. Think about that person that you know really well in your life who, if they sat down right next to you right now, you'd almost start to shake. I got him. Julie's got him. If you don't, God bless you. I th- I think it's the well, I, perhaps the most difficult teaching to practice. In fact, I've even I've even seen some folks who. Uh, who were uh, actual enemies in combat. I've met some of them and heard their stories about how my friend Jim Torbert, for example, he's uh, a great guy, he's an elder and a a leader in his church in in Atlanta where I used to be the pastor. Uh, He he flew helicopters in in, uh, Vietnam, Um, uh, 22 years old. He said the first time he got into battle, he was flying in to pick up a couple of guys who were stuck and he was receiving fire from the ground and he returned fire and he said, Glenn, I had two thoughts. My first thought was, I wanna see my mom again. He was 20 years old. My first thought was, I wanna, I wanna get through this to see my mom, and the second thought, that's probably what that guy wants, too. Jim, Jim went back to Vietnam like 20 years later and talked about how beautiful it was to meet the people and see the faces and how well he was received and all that. It's almost, I've never been in combat, so I, don't, I wanna be careful how I say this, but when I hear people talk like that, it almost sounds easier in, in that sort of brothers-in-arms kind of way then it is the deal, that person sitting next to you that you just don't ever want to see again, whoever he or she might be. And I, and I, think, I think that's in some ways what, what Jesus is getting at. Uh, another friend of mine, though, same church, Sid Elliott, who's actually a good friend of Jim's. Sid was going through a, a really tough experience with somebody who was attacking him, all kinds of unfair things. I won't get into the, the whole story. Most of it's pastoral, and I can't tell you the, the details of it. But six months into it, I I, I had lunch with Sid, and I said, Sid, how's it going with uh, that situation? And he said, you know what? I read the Sermon on the Mount, and I've been praying for her every night. And I'm still mad as hell, that's a quote, but I'm starting to see her as a human being. So maybe that's part of what Jesus' teaching is about here. That person you don't want to sit next to, if you can actually pray for them daily, nightly, three times a day, every time you take a bit of food, maybe they'll start to become human. Not excuse whatever the persecution was, not, not so you have to forgive them if that's impossible, but maybe that's what Jesus is getting at here, that it's in those relationships when we can finally, when we can finally uh, find the shalom that God expects or, or wants for us, us to experience. <clears throat> I was in a... Uh, Uh, one of the last things I did in in Kansas City was I formed a a young adult uh, Bible study, a young adult men's Bible study for... uh young men in their 20s and 30s who were um, professionals who had wives and children at home and we'd meet like at 5.30 right after work so I could come for Bible study at 5.30 and we'd, be, we'd quit at 6.30 so I could get home in time for dinner and see the kids and, and all of that and, and it was a small group of guys who met with me in the library at the church there um, but we, we, read, we read through some of this stuff and I'll never forget, his name is Matt Mater. he's a, um, a U.S. Uh, prosecuting attorney, U.S. attorney. Uh, brilliant, just brilliant guy, bright, bright young lawyer, 34, 35 years old. Matt, in the middle of this study, and we studied the Gospel of Matthew, he just stopped and said, I've been in the church my whole life. I've never heard any of this stuff. Now, he may have heard it and just wasn't paying attention, but it's pretty powerful. And he even said, "Does our this is an exact quote, does our our church know about this? (laughs) Yeah, Matt, I think they do, I've been trying. I I think they do. Uh, that, that's, how, that's how powerful this is. All right, let's, let's, uh, let's go to a little more lighthearted one. The next one is um, from Matthew 6. But whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will, will reward you. Um, <clears throat> my son, Nate, is not a church person. When he was in the eighth grade, he announced to me on a walk, we were taking a walk. He said, I'm no longer wanting to go to church. You can force me, but I'm not gonna go. I'm I'm very interested in the teachings of Buddha. Do you know what I said? I'm interested in the teachings of Buddha. And we got into a conversation, and he didn't go back to church for a long time. Maybe he went Christmas Eve, maybe he went on Easter, but that was about it. My son Nate, though, he knows the Bible pretty well. And when his friends who are Christian will start to pray, he'll say, don't you know what Matthew 6 says? What do you think Jesus is getting at here? Let your faith be lived. If you pray over your meal in public, that's, I'm totally fine with that. Trust me, I do too. It's totally fine. No, no problems there. What Jesus is getting at is, it, it, again, he's talking to the super religious people. Not necessarily faithful, but religious who wear their faith on their sleeve, who want to show off their stuff and make sure everybody knows how, how serious and how Christian, uh, how, how religious they are, not Christian, how religious they are, and Jesus is really challenging them to pay attention to what matters the most. You want to pray? Great. Go home, get in your closet, shut the door, and pray. And your reward will be that, frankly. Go to the next slide, Start. You hypocrite, this is a chapter later, but making the same point. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. This is a great way for Jesus to wind up his Sermon on the Mount. In case there's anybody out there in the crowd that's thinking, well, it's not me. He's talking to all them other people over there. It can't be me. He must be talking to, it's the left-wingers over here. Um, that's, that's who he's talking. The rest It can't be us over here because we're so righteous and right and et cetera. He's making it really clear. Before you worry about somebody else's speck, Check the mirror to see if you've got a log sticking out of your own eye. Um, I really think that Matthew, well, but this is a, this is an aside, but just, just a, a little informational one. Some folks don't think that Jesus actually sat down and delivered this sermon like this from start to finish. That this is actually rather a collection that Matthew and both Luke. Luke, by the way, wh- according to Luke, where did this sermon happen? Anybody know? According to Luke's version, it's the Sermon on the Plain. Um, and you should see some scholars do all kinds of hoop jumping and try to make it all, it's, well, mountain, plain, could have been, maybe it was a soft spot on the top of the mountain and it was a plain and it was level and eh, whatever. It's two different versions, who cares? Um, uh, these are probably collections of little sayings of Jesus that Matthew and Luke then gathered and put into one, one saying, a uh, collection of sayings that be, beginning to end. And what Jesus is really trying to do is, is move them towards, move them towards um, uh, a way of life that lets your life show who you are, not your uh, your particular beliefs or strict religious actions. <clears throat> um, for example, there's a a guy I follow on Facebook who who posted a, que- a question today: um, which is more important, um, orthopraxy or orthodoxy? Orthodoxy is right belief. Orthopraxy is right is right practice. Um, your arrogant senior minister posted on his page and said, give me, a, give me a kind, loving, gracious atheist over a mean, judgmental, angry Christian any day. Um, I didn't get a whole lot of likes on that. <laughs> but I, I think that's a lot of what Jesus is getting into here. Is, is the way we live. I mean, my beliefs have changed a ton since I was 10 years old. They've changed a ton since I was 24. They've changed quite a bit in the last 10 years. Uh, and, and I'm continually trying to feed my brain with new stuff and understanding new ways. And sometimes I figure out some th- new ideas and, and sometimes I don't. But I'm constantly trying to, but really what matters most, I, I think in the long run, is, is the way we're able to love one another. Um, that's not from me. That's from that, I think that's from Jesus too. All right. Now let's go to Luke 15. One of my favorite b- chapters in the whole Bible. Three great, wonderful, amazing parables. Parable of the lost sheep parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the the prodigal and his brother. Uh, Stuart, put put the next slide up there. This is from uh, Robert Capon. Robert Capon spoke here at First Community Church a couple of times. Gene, didn't he? A couple of times in the last 20 years? At least once. Anybody remember hearing Robert Capon speak? Anybody? Some of you do. Good. He was, he was a, just a brilliant guy. I was able to get him to do a couple of retreats of, with my preacher buddies and me and, and our wives. And um, just, He was a sweet, generous soul who could cook like you can't believe. He used to write a, um, a food column for the New York Times back in the 60s. Uh, um, he's, he's, the, he's, the, he's the single greatest voice on the idea of grace in in the United States still the last hundred years. Even to this day, grace remains hard to swallow. Religiosity and moralism go down easier than free forgiveness. We'd much rather have rules. We'd much have things, you have to do this, do this, do this, do this this to follow, and that's what you got to do in order to be in God's good good terms. In fact, Robert spoke here in Ohio, Cherry something retreat center. Cherry Valley, yeah, hey, good. Uh, um, uh, that Dick Wing guy was in charge of the retreat, and I, I flew up here from Atlanta, and Robert was the keynoter, and there's about 50 uh, disciples in, in UCC United Church of Christ preachers, and Robert spoke, and he was doing a whole lecture on grace and how the basic uh, concept of grace is. That's how, you're, that's how you're getting through life. The only way you get through a life that matters is by letting grace wash over you, and a guy sitting right here where Michael Elliott is, a preacher in a, in a fairly prominent UCC pulpit, said that's BS, and he didn't mean Bible school. <laughs> and I was sitting in the back row uh, next to Robert's wife, Valerie, who's a whole other story, um, and she just started to shake. She said, oh, no, here it goes again. Because when Robert would, would preach and teach and speak, it didn't matter if he was speaking to evangelicals or liberals, he made everybody mad. Because this guy in the front row, but Robert would just say, well, say more, what, what, what are you getting at? And by the way, he didn't say the, wor- the letters, BS. He said the words. <clears throat> the whole room kind of got shocked. He said, well, say more about what you mean. He said, it's got to be love. It's got to be love. It's got to be love. If it's not love, then it doesn't matter. And, and I leaned over to Valerie and said, I'm not sure he gets the whole love idea. <laughs> <laughs> the, point, the point is, the, the point is, um, whether you're, you're a strict fundamentalist or a strict uh, a liberal who has your own set of rules that you've got to follow, you're missing the point. It's about grace, it's about grace, it's about grace. It's about God's reception of you and me, period, freely. And, and here's, here's where I argue that point from, Luke chapter 15, especially. Um, the first parable, parable of the lost sheep. Um, the parable makes no sense. It's completely stupid if you're a shepherd. <laughs> if you have 100 sheep and you've got 99 in the fold, and you've got one lost sheep. What are you going to do? If you're a shepherd, a smart shepherd, you're going to protect the 99. Yeah, you're going to protect the 99. You're not going to go. You're not going to leave those sheep to the whims of the wolves and whatever else might come and take them, and, and poachers and whatever else. While you go off looking for that one airheaded lamb who's more airheaded than the other ones. You're not going to do that. It makes absolutely no sense. What's what's Jesus saying here? What's that? Grace makes no sense, exactly. It makes no sense whatsoever. What's, what's he doing? He's essentially saying, there, aren't no, there are no found sheep. There are no found sheep. All of us need to be found. And God, who is represented here by the shepherd, more or less, is gonna to come to find you wherever you are and bring you home, throw you over God's shoulders and carry you home again. And the next day, and this is the question that Robert always gets, The next day, what if the sheep runs away again the next day? What's what's God going to do? Go find that sheep. Pick it up, throw it over its shoulders. Do you remember Hosea 11? How can I hand you over, O Israel? You were my child. I led you by the hand out of Egypt. You were my son, my loved one. I can't express my fierce anger on you. I will love you now and forever and always. That's that's who inspires Jesus when he tells this parable. It's a stupid stupid act by a a shepherd. It's not about that. There used to be lots of arguments, when I was growing up especially, about, oh, how do you get in to be safe with the other sheep? What's it like to be one of the safe sheep? And it's totally missing the point. Next parable, Parable of the Lost Coin. Woman has one coin. She's poor. It's the only coin she has. What does she do? She hunts all day. She cleans and 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 cleans until she finds that coin. What did that coin do to get saved? That's what's happening. The coin's being saved. What did the coin do to get saved? It just laid there. Capon, who I quoted earlier, would say the coin's dead. That ultimately he would base grace in resurrection. That it's in, our, it's in our final admission to our own death that we experience true salvation. I can't tell you how many sociologists and psychiatrists and psychologists I'm reading these days who talk about that same idea from a sociological perspective. Once we accept our death, we can live our lives much more fully in the way that we, all, we should have been living them all the way along. And I I read it and I go, that's in the Bible. That's really good. Whether they know it or not, that's really good. The coin is lost. It doesn't suddenly sit up on its end and say, I trust and believe in you as my personal Lord and Savior. Now I'm ready to be picked up. The woman finds him and picks up the coin. Now it's been saved. You see what grace does? Grace doesn't come to you and say, okay, once you clean up, once you've done these things, once you've stopped doing this, stop living like this, then you'll be saved. No, grace just saves everybody. I'll hold that stop for a minute. Next parable. Parable of the prodigal son. This really ought to be, if we're being fair, the parable of the noxious older brother. And if we're really being, if we're really being accurate, it ought to be the parable of the father who knows nothing better. How's the story go? Younger son comes and says, um, I want my inheritance now, and I, I'm tired of living here. I wanna go off and, uh, and just live on my own. What's he essentially saying to his father? You're dead. You're dead. You are dead to me. I want nothing to do with it anymore. I want my money. So the dad gives him his money. He, he goes off to uh, um, the Las Vegas of, of, um, of Southern Israel, somewhere out in the desert, blows it all, has nothing left. Wakes up with the pigs. With the pigs. What does that say to a Hebrew person? He's unclean. It's worse than that. He's in hell. That's, almost, that's an image of hell. He has fallen into the, the dirtiest, worst, bottomless, disgusting, horrible place he could be. He's slopping around in the mud with the pigs. And he wakes up and he has this idea. Even my father's servants live better than this. Now, is he saying, I'm sorry? No. He's saying, I can cut a deal with my dad and maybe get back to, you know, a decent clean place to sleep and things are better. And then he's concocting a story as he's walking up the road. I'm going to tell my dad, oh, you know, I'm really sorry. And Boy, why did I mess up all that stuff? Does he ever give that speech to his father before the father just says anything? The father sees him and the father comes sprinting down the road. Doesn't give him a chance to give the speech puts his arms around him, brings him back, cleans him up, gives him a a great coat, throws a big huge party because that's what that father does. His son was dead and he's alive again. Again, hear what Luke is doing? Luke is kind of setting us up a little bit for the resurrection story coming up in, in about nine chapters. He's setting him up for that resurrection story at the, very, at the very end. My son was dead, and now he's alive. This is a resurrection story in some ways. It's a, it's a grace story, uh, couched in resurrection terms. He was dead, now he's alive. The older brother's doing what? Look, I've been here all this time, and I've been, uh, you know, I've been doing all this stuff, and you're not, what is, what is with you? This is terrible. Um, Fred Craddock once was preaching a sermon, and he, he preached a sermon, he said, don't you just wish once, that the dad would have run down the the road and dragged the brother back up, the the prodigal son back up and said, you need to be more like your older brother. Now you're gonna be, your older brother's gonna be in charge and he's gonna tell you what to do and hopefully someday you'll live up to be just like him. Okay, now older brother, you take him and go clean him up. And some lady in the back of the church said, that's the way it should have (laughs) been. I mean, it kind of is. But Jesus isn't worried about family relationships. He's making the really strong point making the really strong point that the loving father or we could say the loving mother is always 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 going to welcome us home now here's the part i was skipping ahead a minute ago here's the part i was going to say the one thing i do like about this parable is the son does make a u-turn he does head back home he does put himself in the place to be received now the lost sheep the sheep's too stupid to know to come back to the fold And the shepherd's too stupid to know to not leave the 99. it's a beautiful story. The coin's just laying there, and it's saved. But then Jesus puts his story within family relationships, and it's just beautiful the way it happens. It's just beautiful the way the father loves him and receives him, kills the fatted calf. They have a big, huge party. And here's the question that Capon would get when he would talk this way. What if the prodigal son does it again? What's the father do? In the way the story's told, he does the same thing. Remember, there's another story where Jesus is with his disciples outside the temple, and there's a publican, uh, uh, a, um, a, a, uh, a Pharisee, who comes up and puts tons of money in the, in the offering, makes a lot of noise, because it usually it's a big horn-shaped thing, and you pour your gold and silver and stuff in there, and it makes a lot of noise. And, and then he looks over here and sees this tax collector, sinner, horrible, terrible guy, says, thank God I'm not like that guy. And then that guy over there, that terrible, horrible guy, he says, dear Lord, please forgive me, I'm a sinner. And Jesus asks his disciples, which one went home justified? Which one, according to the story? The arrogant guy with the log sticking out of his eye? But then here's where Capon pushes us. If the same two people come back the next day, and that guy has gone back, and he's gone back to stealing and ripping people off and sleeping with hookers and all that stuff, and he comes up, Lord, have mercy on me, I'm a terrible sinner. And he comes back, and he's faithful, and he puts all of his money in and gives to the temple, and the same thing happens again, Who's justified? that guy. A lot of you may have grandchildren by now. I'm just kind of guessing. In some ways, it's almost as though it's grandparent theology at work here. It's almost as though it's the grandparent. My grandparents were going to love me forever. Sometimes my grandmother would say, Robert Glenn Miles, which meant I was in serious trouble. But by the end of the day, I had a piece of cake and some ice cream. You know, That's just the way grandparents were. What, what Jesus is making is he's trying to get them out of a bookkeeping religion where there's somebody keeping track, marking down on a sheet all the 17,000 things you did wrong in the last two days. It's not about that. It's about being open to the, the beauty of grace. All right, speaking of grace, um, <clears throat> let's go to slide nine. <clears throat> all right, another trick question. Who witnessed the resurrection? And I'm warning you, it's a trick question. Nobody. Very good. Wow! Hey, most of the time when I do this, people go, "Well, um, wasn't it Mary and I think Peter was there? Wasn't Peter there?" No. No one, according to the stories, no one witnessed the resurrection, the actual resurrection. Now there were witnesses, according to the stories, of the resurrected Jesus, but no one. Re- God, this was going to be a really fun point, and you just already knew. <laughs> All right. Uh, flip, flip to Matthew 28. We're gonna we're gonna skim through these real quick. I just want to highlight some fun, some fun things here. And, I want, and if you did the reading, if you did the reading, you, you should have picked up on this. We got four very different stories. Again, we tend to conflate them and put them all together and make one story. But when you actually just pay attention to each particular gospel writer's point of view, we get a very different understanding. Not conflicting, not, um, not, not necessarily contrasting, but a different way of viewing and seeing what's going on in the, in the resurrection story. In Matthew 28, um, we have Mary Magdalene, and we have the other Mary. Who's that? Lots of arguments about it. Probably the, Mary, the wife of Clopas, who we'll hear later about, I think, in Acts. Um, by the way, Mary Magdalene and this other Mary, they see. They go to see, is what the text says. The Greek word there for see, S-E-E, like see, vision, means to understand. Matthew seems to be implying something here. This is pretty cool. Uh, ladies, pay attention, the women get it. The women are expecting to go and find a resurrected Jesus. That's kind of Matthew's version, um, because it's different in Mark. Uh, um, There's an earthquake. Uh, Jesus says greetings, says hello to them. They fall on the feet and they worship, and then he tells the women, what does he tell them? Go and tell. According to Matthew's gospel, who are the first uh, evangelists? Women. In case anybody asks you about that, Jesus is the one who said you can ordain women because he did it right there in Matthew 28. Go and tell. That's the that's witnessing to the, res, the resurrection. All right, now go to Matthew 16. Flip over to that um, version. While you're doing that, let me say a couple of things. You probably noticed that in, in Mark, I'm sorry, I said Matthew, I meant Mark 16. <clears throat> in Mark 16, you've got two or three endings, at least three, maybe there's four, And you've got a Bible like mine, there's one that says the shorter ending of Mark and then the longer ending of Mark and then you've got some other stuff in there, Jesus commissions the disciples. The oldest Greek manuscripts available and biblical scholars will tell you the older the manuscript, the more likely it's accurate, okay? The oldest Greek manuscripts of Mark's gospel end at verse eight. Put that slide up there for me, Stuart. Mark 16, eight. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. A little different ending than Matthew. What most scholars believe is that these other endings uh, were added to Mark's gospel years later by, by preachers and theologians and scholars sitting around going, that's a terrible way to end the story. We need, we need better. And so, and you can even tell there's different. Remember what I said? You can, sometimes you can tell by vocabulary use and grammatical style and, and you know, all that sort of thing that there's, it's obviously a different writer, etc. All this stuff after verse eight was added on after the original gospel was written. And here, here's what I think's happening with verse eight. I think Mark is telling his story like this told you, if I talk slower, I go longer. <clears throat> I think Mark is, oh, in fact, Mark's favorite word is the Greek word "euthus," uh, Epsilon, upsilon, theta, upsilon, sigma. Euthus. It means immediate or immediately. And immediately, Jesus went. And immediately, Jesus went. And immediately, Jesus said. And immediately, the disciples went over here. Mark's gospel, everything's happening fast. And it's like, there's this, there's this messianic secret. This Jesus at first is saying, don't tell anybody what's going on. Don't tell anybody. And then all of a sudden he's like, all right, we gotta get going because this is, this, is, this is happening more fast, faster than I thought it would. Let's tell everybody. Let's get it out there. Let's move here. Let's tell there. Let's go there. Let's go there. Then he's killed. He's put to death. He says he's gonna come back. And it ends. And they're terrified. Here's, that's good, this is good preaching. Here's what I think Mark's doing. I think he's saying, all right, you've heard the story. Do you believe? Do you think he's back? Do you think he's alive? And if you do, how's that affect your faith? What's that do to your heart? Do you, where are you? That's really good preaching. What, what he's doing is, Rather than saying, you know, there's books, um, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. I read that book 20 years ago. There's all kinds of um, uh, apologetics, called Christian apologetics, arguing for proof, that all that stuff. In the long run, none of that moves me. Because belief, at the end of the day, is about where's your heart? I talked about this on Sunday. Where's your heart? You know, the word pistis in Greek, pi, yoda, something else. Sigma, tau, yoda, sigma means, it's translated in the, in the Bible as believe, but at its root, to have pistis, is to give one's heart to something. Are you, I think what Mark is saying is, are you ready to give your heart to this? And, and think about this. How many of you have witnessed the resurrected Christ? I mean, in person. How many of you, have, well, don't raise your hand on this one, but answer this quietly in your head. How many of you have experienced the resurrected Christ? In, in some ways, and in some ways, all four Gospels are doing this. To me, it's so much more powerful. Even, I think it's John who says, um, blessed are those uh, uh, who have not seen yet believe. That's in the, in the story of Doubting Thomas. That's us. That, that's us. I mean, maybe you experienced Jesus in your spouse or a friend or a neighbor, something like that. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that, that's, that's what these gospel writers are doing. Rather than saying, here's proof, now you have to believe, they're, they're basically saying, are you gonna give your heart to this? I believe that the early church experienced the resur- res- resurrected Christ in their midst much more powerfully than when he was around. Uh, a couple of things to look at that. Look at, Luke 20, look at Luke 24. When he was around in the post-resurrection story, so I should finish that sentence. Uh, now we got the, we got the, the next story. Uh, um... We've got the women. We got Mary Magdalene. We got jo- we got Joanna. We got slightly different uh, Mary, the mother of James, and Jonas. I think, um, and, and that, and now then we have that amazing story, where there are a couple of disciples, a couple of people walking to Emmaus, Luke 24. They're walking to Emmaus. The resurrection has happened. They're talking about all the events that have happened in Jerusalem. Oh, my gosh, what an amazing weekend it was. And the things and the crucifixion and the crowds and the violence and the fear. And now the story is that Jesus has come back. And and all of a sudden, Jesus comes along. And do they recognize him? They have no idea who he is. In Matthew, they recognized him. Uh, In John, which we'll look at real quickly in a moment. Oh, Jesus, go going along. Sorry. In John, uh, she doesn't recognize him. Who, Who are you? Are you the gardener? In Emmaus, on the road to Emmaus, they don't recognize him. And it's when they get to Emmaus and Jesus takes bread. Remember the story? He breaks it and he gives it to them. He fills some wine and he gives it to them. What does it say? Their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Pretty darn good preaching. Every time you are with each other and you break the bread and you share the wine, every time you share with each other, every time you give your heart to another person, it's as though Jesus is in your midst, and you can recognize him and see him. Now, John, real, real, real quickly. Uh, John's gospel, like I said, they don't, uh, Mary doesn't recognize him at first. Uh, um, uh, the, uh, the disciples run to the tomb. They don't see anything. Um, then later in John 20, when all the disciples, what are the disciples doing after the resurrection? Remember, according to John 20, John's story, they're in hiding. And suddenly Jesus appears. Um, Whatever we know about the resurrected Jesus uh, is impossible to explain because sometimes he's re- the way the stories are told, sometimes he's recognized, sometimes he's not, sometimes he can go through body, through, through walls, all this stuff. Um, it's, to me, it's all very, very, very mystical, very strange, very weird, very hooky-spooky. That's my deep theological explanation of the resurrection. But he comes in amongst, amongst them, and remember what he says to Thomas? Who said what? I'm not going to believe until I can put my hands in the in the scars and my my touch the scars, touch the scar in his in his side. I'm not going to believe. And Jesus comes and he shows him his scars. Remember the story. Jesus fall or uh, uh, Thomas falls and says, "My Lord and my God." What captures my attention in that story is Jesus' wounds are still there. See, the wounds are real. Um, um, Annie Dillard says, "Our wounds." Are our worships if the wounds aren't real if the life that jesus lived isn't real then i don't then i don't want something i don't want a magical mystical savior who hey poof everything's fine it's all great now no those wounds carry him forward when thomas sees the wounds that's when he believes i think that's ultimately what john is trying to say too our wounds are where we'll experience the resurrected christ we went two minutes long i'm sorry um if you've got any questions, I'll take them. Why don't, I, why don't I just take them afterwards unless there's a burning question that somebody really wants to get out in front of, of all, all the folks out here tonight. Um, good, let's stand and pray. <clears throat> God, sometimes it is amazing how powerful these ancient stories continue to be for us, for the world. The way the story of two wandering peasants forced into taxation, forced into shelter in a barn for the night, bring light and hope and life into the world. Remind us, God, as we go into the darkness tonight, back to our homes, that there's always hope, and that even the darkest corners of our souls cannot hide from the light of the good love you've given to all of us. In Christ's name, amen. All right, everybody.